This is Speaker Series Rewind, a podcast by High Alpha. In this series, we revisit our favorite discussions from High Alpha Speaker Series events. Welcome to our monthly speaker series. And each week, we'll introduce you to the industry leaders, successful entrepreneurs, and investors running everything from breakout SaaS companies to professional racing teams and beyond. I am really, really excited for this conversation. You'll hear ideas that will inspire you to overcome obstacles. There's no construction manual when you start your first company. Become a better leader and try new things. When I see a new product category that someone says, like, it's the dumbest thing ever. Oh, okay, that sounds interesting. Because after all, good leaders are always learning. You are not expected to know the answer. Instead, you're expected to learn the answer. Get ready to build better habits. We are what we repeatedly do. And embrace conflict. Conflict is healthy. Conflict should be expected. With inspirational interviews from High Alpha. Welcome back to Speaker Series Rewind, a podcast hosted by High Alpha. My name is Emma Ryan, and I'm super excited to share today's episode with you all. For those of you new to the show, we revisit High Alpha Speaker Series events. In season two, we're giving you a peek behind the curtain into the world of venture capital through conversations with leading investors. In today's episode, we're revisiting our Speaker Series event from July 2016 with Paul Singh, co founder and chief strategy officer at Bump Health. Paul shared his background his investing thesis, and his idea around Moneyball for Cities. Paul then sat down with High Alpha partner Christian Anderson to discuss startup communities and building great companies in depth. With that, let's get into the episode. I always tell people that I am a, uh, my name is Paul Singh, and I am a blood-sucking capitalist and a full-time truck driver now. Uh, so the thing that I like to talk about, so let me just warn you a couple, a couple things. First of all, let's keep this super interactive. If you think I'm full of shit, that's cool, you can say it. If you have questions and you want to like go left field, just you don't have to raise your hand, just say it, and we'll figure it out together. I, I really don't want this to be like a one-way thing. Um, and, and you know, the thing that I think a lot about is, is seven years ago when I first started investing, uh, I, I sort of coined this, this idea of something called Moneyball for Startups. And that was uh, stealing out of Bill James and uh, the Moneyball guys. If you ever saw that movie with, with Brad Pitt, you know, the idea was that... Um, uh, the way we picked baseball players was all wrong, and what he said, in a nutshell, uh, is he looked at the data and he said that you know the how a guy swings his bat doesn't matter, how they walk doesn't matter. What what really matters is how many, um, what percent of time can they get on base? And in theory, if you could build an entire team of people that could get on base, you could push the runners around the bases and win more more games. That was the core idea of, of Moneyball. And so when I started investing, um, I, I had bootstrapped my first company, and I'll tell you more about that here in a little bit. But the idea was that in a world where I couldn't predict who was going to be a unicorn or somebody that's going to return any money to us, what if I just indexed the entire market, um, lot, like high spread, low, um, low check size. So back then, it was $50,000 was sort of the check size. And the idea was that I would just index the entire market and then just pile drive into the winners. Um, so that worked. So so did that for a while, and then now I think a lot about Moneyball for Cities, and we, we'll get to that here in a minute. That's actually what's more interesting to me now. Um, so we'll get to that, and, and I'll warn you by now, by right now that we're not going to go through this whole deck, but I'll send you everything if you want. I'm pretty accessible, but the email is just paul at resultsjunkies.com. This is like 80 slides. When I thought about what I wanted to talk to you guys about, I just wanted to brain dump everything into it. Um, so I kind of broke this out into three sections. Um, Based on all the data and all the, all the stuff I've seen over the last couple of years, the three sections are how startups have changed, you know, how the world's kind of changed, 
how venture has changed over the last seven years, and then how city building has changed. So, and we'll jump around uh, based on like what you guys want to talk about. Um, the question I like to start this with all the time when I want to frame it, or just to frame the morning for us, um, why, are, why are tech companies important? Create high paying jobs. High paying jobs, that's actually a good one, yeah. Anybody else? Sure. What is it, innovation? What was in the back? Drive change, yeah, I mean, look, I think all of those are, are, are correct. I would argue, first and foremost, that tech is the fundamental driver of growth in, in the industrialized world. So what that means is that, you know, once you've got roads and laws and, you know, houses and your families are fed and all that stuff, tech tends to be the thing that moves society forward. What we forget is that today, the la what the laptop and coding is today is what having a steam engine and an operating manual was 150 years ago. It's the equivalent of having a, a printing press and knowing how to use it 500 years ago. And it's the equivalent of having a pen and knowing how to write 1,000 years ago. It may not feel like that to you, but that, that is technology, right? Um, more importantly, I think tech is starting to change the way that we work. So I have this assertion that for most of our parents in this room, they probably worked one job in their careers. Right? And for the most of the people here in this room today, we're going to work four or five jobs in our careers, right? And they'll be kind of in series. And most of our children will likely work four or five jobs at the same time. And if you want to see the beginnings of that, you know, just hop into any Uber and ask the, ask the driver what else they do. And we may not be thinking about this now, but it has profound implications on, on how our cities operate, right? Just imagine, for example, what happens when, when most of the tax returns are 1099s, five or six 1099s, as opposed to one W-2, where, who covers the corporate tax? Where does that shortfall come from? Um, don't quote me on this, but there's some data coming out of the state of Tennessee now, early parts of t Tennessee now, where um, five years ago they finally got uh, internet into some of the rural parts of the state. Um, and not even rural, actually some, some cities like Chattanooga uh, finally got internet through the power company recently. And what's, what's really fascinating is there's starting to be data coming out of there where um, you know, they've got for whatever it is, 100 years, they've got data on the W-2s, like how many people were filing W-2s with their tax returns. And there's, a, there's now data coming out that as the internet came into each of these households, there's a strong correlation to 1099s on top of the W-2s for those same households. Turns out that when you bring internet to people's homes, they do something at night, whether it's accounting through the web for somebody else or selling something on eBay and making more money. So it really is changing the way we work. And so that's sort of assertion number one. And then assertion number two is, frankly, it's one of the last legal ways to make a ton of money. And I say that jokingly, half jokingly, half seriously, but like if you want to help people get ahead in life, and frankly, if you want to help your city get ahead, in life, uh, get ahead, you have to create more high paying jobs. And I can tell you across our portfolio that, that the average tech job is paying 30 to 40% more than the average in every geography they're in. It, the data holds true, whether we're talking about our companies in Tulsa or Bangalore or Nairobi. Tech companies always pay 30 to 40% more. More interestingly, by the way, every tech job you create here in Indianapolis or that you create in Bangalore or Nairobi, what's fascinating in the data is that another three to four local jobs will be created within a one mile radius of those jobs. There's real data to back all that. It's all cited. I'll show it to you as we go through this. So why, why I want to say that to you is just to frame it is just to say that I, we as an industry don't do ourselves any favors by talking about ourselves as startups, right? 
I'll just make the, 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 the claim right now that if you have $1 revenue from somebody you don't know, you're no longer a startup. That's not a badge. That's not like something that you should like wear on your arm and, and be proud of. The minute you have one customer that is not somebody you know, you are a business. You start taking yourself seriously, other people start to take you seriously, right? Because the, the few, like, what we're really getting at is, is that even though most jobs are not going to be tech jobs, the reality is if you believe the assertions I've made already, and again, the data is all here and I'll show it to you, um, then the reality is that even though tech jobs are not the majority of jobs, the reality is that what happens in the tech sector will determine the outcome, the salaries of everybody else around. Quick background on me, I was an immigrant from India. I moved to a small town called Ashburn, Virginia. Uh, when I was little, little town of 8,000 people when I moved there. Uh, basically, there were only three things in Ashburn, Virginia, Dulles Airport, dirt, and immigrants. So that was uh, very factually correct. Um, but as I was growing up, I was a bricklayer. Um, so 20 years ago, I built patios. Um, uh, and during the mornings, I, I built patios. I went to George Mason University in the afternoons. And then I sold cars at a place called CarMax in the afternoon. Um, Fun fact for another time, uh, 20 years later, nobody's ever sold more cars than me at CarMax. So uh, I'll leave it to you to decide what that means. But um, if I could build you a patio, sell you a car, and sit on your cap table now. But here, here's the thing. I came from a society I came from a society where we valued things that we could touch, right? So I could touch a brick and tell you what, what it was going to cost me to put that in for you. I could sell you a car and because I, I could touch it because of the society I was from, I could value it for you. Right? And that's what society was up until 20 years ago. And uh, then in, in Ashburn, this little town right by Dulles Airport, if anybody's ever flown into it, um, this guy starts a company, and uh, that company was called America Online. And it was interesting. He doubled the size of Ashburn every day. So our town was 8,000 people. Within a year, AOL had 6,000 employees in there. So if you, you just do the math, right? Like from 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. every day, this, the town doubled in size. And so um, I didn't really know what it was. I mean, we're talking about the mid-90s. And so all I knew was that these people didn't care when I just raised the prices on the patios. And they would buy like $100,000 Porsches on Wednesday afternoons in 20 minutes. Um, and I remember there was this guy named Mike that bought, I, I still remember, it was like a, it was a 97 or 98 um, silver 911 Carrera 4S. And he paid 100000 bucks for it cash. And then he was like, uh, I got to get home for, to meet, you know, for, for, for dinner or something like that. Can I pick it up tomorrow? And I was like, how do you drop 100K and then not want to take the car with you? And so I said to Mike, I was like, dude, I don't know what you guys have in that building over there. He worked at AOL. I was like, I don't know what you guys have in that building over there. I just imagined there was stacks of cocaine in the basement or something. <laughs> and I was like, I just want in. Whatever that is, I just want in. And so I like begged and begged and begged and he finally gave me an internship there. Anyway, I learned how to code, and that was sort of how I got into tech. But it was fascinating to me going to AOL. The most fundamental thing I saw there was people could sell stuff to people through the internet without ever looking them in the eye. Right? When I sold you a car, I had to shake your hand. When I sold you a patio, I had to drive to your house. But these people were selling stuff to other people without ever seeing them, without ever knowing them. And they had this concept of recurring revenue, which is brand new. Um, and so. I ended up uh, starting a hosting company, uh, building out a bunch of data centers, um, literally right across the street from AOL. By the time I sold my business in 2004, uh, about 50% of the world's internet traffic went through my six data centers there. Um, so that was kind of cool. It sounds cool now, actually. Back then, we didn't really know. Again, remember, the internet was like half the world thought it was like the worst thing in the, you know, in the history of mankind. 
half the people uh, thought that it was like the best thing ever. So um, I still remember actually my dad one day, you know, and if anybody's ever been in like server ops um, or IT ops, like you had to carry a pager, if you remember that? And so I come home one day, I was like, hey, you know, I, like, I didn't have a whole lot of money, so I'd like steal free food from my parents' house. So and then I come home with a pager, and my dad, you know, immigrant family, hardworking, blue collar, he goes, um, he said something to me, he goes, uh, what's that? And I was like, oh yeah, it's for the servers or whatever, I gotta keep an eye on, make sure everything's online. He goes, listen, only two kinds of people wear pagers, drug dealers and doctors, and I know you're not one of those. <laughs> and he like took the pager and threw it against the wall, and I was like, motherfucker, that was like, that was like $400. <laughs> um, all right, so over the, over the years, so I co-founded a venture firm called Five, 500 Startups. Um, so I did 14 investments in 2009, uh, learning how to invest. Um, so uh, did that, I was like, oh man, okay, I need more money to keep doing this. So um, ended up doing 73 deals in 2010. But as I did that, I ended up raising a fund with a, a friend of mine, Dave McClure. We're both from the DC area. And, uh, and anyway, so that firm is now called 500. We have about 140 employees on that side. Um, I still have my stakes. Uh, I'm probably one of the larger LPs and, and owners on the, on the management side now, but um, did that. And then what was interesting was as we started to invest in more and more companies, what was fascinating was the companies would cluster. They would cluster. Now remember that seven years ago, there were no co-working spaces or very few co-working spaces. So one of the things we started to do is we started to open up more offices, but maybe less than 10% of the floor space was for our employees. The rest of it is really like, hey, if we fund you, you've got a key fob to the office, you can use it. And so that's kind of how we stumbled into that. Um, so as I started to do that, I started to notice that like, people would cluster. And so I left the firm on a day-to-day -day basis two years ago, and I founded something called Disruption Corporation. Frankly, it was just I just needed the initial DC because that was like where I was from. And so the thought was, you know, every time we put one of these offices down, we'd have like 50, 60, 70 companies that would just kind of merge into these spaces and hang out. And um, anyway, long story short, there's this place right outside of DC called Crystal City. Sort of called it Crystal Shitty, and I won't bore you with the background of it, but it was 50% vacant for about 10 years. And it has a single owner, which is really fascinating. So um, a company called Vornado owns all of it. And I uh, met the CEO of Vornado, and, and this guy Mitchell, and he's like, hey, listen, don't freak out. I got the least worst idea you ever heard, um, but I can fix the city. And so I took over the city, uh, 8 million square feet, just took control of the city about two and a half years ago. I literally put my face on every lamppost, bus, train. <laughs> if you flew into Reagan Airport in 2013 and 14, you would see my face on every, every gate when you flew in. Um, every, literally every bus, every metro train. Um, half of it was out of vanity. Half of it was because I needed people to know that we were changing the way the city was going to operate, that there was going to be something new happening. Um, you look great. Thanks, man. Yeah, yeah. There was a really cool photographer that made me stand like that. So I don't, I don't even know how to do that anymore. But um, that guy was so like weird. That photographer, he was like, yeah, I just came back to, from photographing the Dalai Lama. I think he was high the whole time. Um, and I don't know what he had like 17 interns running around doing stuff all the time. And I, and I was like, I'm doing life wrong. This guy, this guy gets to fly around and just smoke weed all day or something. So. Not endorsing that, I'm just saying. Um, so, so I did that, and so what, here's, here's the point of it though. We, uh, Crystal City had been 50% vacant, eight million square feet was 50% vacant for 10 years. Uh, a lot of bad stuff happened there as well because of that, right? Um, crime and all sorts of things. 
So the bet that I was taking was, what if we actually made the, the three core pillars of the rebuild of Crystal City uh, entrepreneurial? So the first pillar was that I raised a separate $50 million fund for companies that wanted to move there, high growth, tech-enabled companies only. It wasn't a charity, it was a venture fund. Um, and so if you, if you moved your company there, we'd fund you anywhere from 250K to a million bucks, but you, you didn't get any discounts on the spaces or anything like that, but you did have to locate there for a year within that. I mean, this is a mile long and about, probably about six blocks wide, so you had to be in there. Um, the second pillar was a, a, a maker space, so tech shop, if you guys are familiar with that. Um, so we partnered with them to bring them in and built them a 22,000 square foot facility. And then the third anchor was WeWork. So for, for, uh, we needed a place for other people that weren't you know, high growth tech companies or makers, they needed a place to, uh, to work. And then actually most recently we just opened We Live there. So above that facility we actually gave them a whole building um, and opened up We Live. We wanted low cost housing for young professionals. Turns out, and so we actually kind of built that in a triangle formation. So we live is here, the fund is there, and, and all the companies can go there, and then um, and then makers, uh, the makerspace is over here. The interesting thing is, uh, we put restaurants all the way through the middle of that. Lots of glass. So the idea was, I want your kids to be able to have a burger with Spike Mendelson at Spike Mendelson's restaurant while they watch a MakerBot, right? Or I wanted your, I wanted you to have a client that comes over to WeWork to visit you, but they're passing by. Uh, you know, the venture-funded companies and, and getting tours. And so I stole a lot of ideas. I had spent a year kind of driving around and, and visiting guys like Tony Shea in Vegas, the Real Ventures guys in Montreal, the American Underground in Durham, and just kind of picking. And so it worked. I mean, we went from 50% vacancy in 2013 to under 7% vacancy now. Um, we think actually based on the way that leases are looking right now, we may actually get to 3% vacancy by the end of the year, depending on when some of the new tenants can move in. The point of this is, is that while entrepreneurs take up the least percentage of square footage for us in the city, it turns out that if you curate them, all the big companies want to be around them. So Lockheed, Boeing, Northrop, everybody's moved their R&D divisions there. We've actually got nonprofits now that have moved their, their, uh, um, uh, their organizations there. We've got celebrity chefs now that have opened up restaurants um, because they know that these tech-enabled people are paid more. So. So that was cool, it worked. And then I started, so, that, so last year I was sitting there, I'd been, so while this is all happening, by the way, um, I had been sitting on airplanes for about a quarter million miles a year uh, investing in companies. So it's a quarter million miles a year, you can just do the math. It's like, I was doing 80 red eyes a year. So my red eye flight budget was higher than my hotel budget, um, which sounds sexy until you do want your first red eye and then you're like, F this. Like, <laughs> and so last year I was like, okay, how do I do this while also spending time with you know, uh, my better half and, and, and all that. So I thought, well, let's just sell everything. And <laughs> I bought a truck and an Airstream. It's like the classic midlife crisis, I guess. So um, I go to Airstream and I was like, hey, listen, I've never camped or RV'd. Like, brown people don't know how to do that. And so uh, <laughs> it's not racist if I say it, just so you know. So, so it's like, and so, um, uh, Here's what my house looked like, and I would really like it if you could make me something like that. So when they were done laughing, it took them 117 days to build what we think is probably North America's heaviest Airstream now. Um, so we've got like granite and all this stuff. We're definitely glamping. Um, <laughs> large water, like, like I think it's the largest water tank on any Airstream. We've got the largest electrical system for any of the electrical nerds in here. The breaker box on your house is probably 200 amps if you have a lot of power in your house. Um, our, our main breaker is 600 amps on board. So. <laughs> 
I can power your office, actually. I think that's the only reason Chris let me park in front of his office, is like, if the power goes out, I'll just plug into the trailer. Um, one other fun fact, believe it or not, because of the weight of the trailer, the truck docks to the trailer, the trailer doesn't dock to the truck. And so there's special hitches and stuff we had to build for this thing. Um, one other fun fact, the truck, we had to upfit the truck to do some stuff to be able to carry this thing. The truck is fully warrantied by the SVT team for 80 mile an hour jumps, uh, six foot jumps at 80 miles an hour with no frame bend. So um, why I need that, I have no idea. But anyway, so then I, I, I write this newsletter every Friday and I said, hey, um, hey guys, I just bought a Airstream. I don't know where I'm going to go with it, but if you got a parking lot and you're cool with me hanging out for a week, I want to meet you. And so I thought like maybe six people would be crazy enough to let the cousin Eddie of the tech world hang out out back. And actually, long story short, we're doing 38 cities this year um, where I spend a week at a time in these cities and I want to get to know all the investors, all the founders, all the policymakers. Um, and so Indianapolis is city 19 for me, um, 19 more to go. Uh, and it's been fun along the way. We've had people that like make t-shirts. This is so, I think this is inappropriate. He, he made this t-shirt that says, I got funded on the Sing thing. Um, <laughs> Like, we've got guys that manage the family offices of, 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 you know, politicians, and I get to hang out on weekends in really cool parks, and so it's just been really fun. Somebody made koozies, which is really cool. Uh, turns out when, you're, when you have a trailer, nobody hates you. So, um, but here's, here's where I'm going with this. Well, very few people hate you, I think. But um, anyway, here's what I'm really trying to build. I want to go to all these cities, and I, I know Christian called it a tier two city. I, I don't really like that term, but I, I know there's probably no, not very many good terms for it. But here, here's the thing. Like, I think more than ever, the probability of large companies coming out of cities like Indianapolis is very, like, it's increasing so fast now. So, so let me say it a different way. Um, in the past, you had to go to Silicon Valley or New York to raise the big money that you wanted. But as the internet sort of, like, got into more and more cities, what we've seen is, is that we've been able to decouple like, so, so if, if version one of like the internet was you could decouple where you are from where your customer is, version two of it now, or if, I don't know if version is the right word, but version two of it is that you can now decouple where the company is from where the money comes from. And I know for the founders in the room it doesn't feel that way, but I can tell you from my portfolio, we have a lot of companies that are now valued over $100 million that have never stepped foot in the valley. That have never stepped foot in the valley, right? And so... So what I'm really trying to do is build what I call an API to venture capital and functional expertise uh, in every one of these cities. So when I come into the city, I want to meet everybody and I want to get to know like what it's like to live, work, and play here. But I also hope that by meeting with you and actually a lot, uh, we bring other investors with us too, uh, for anybody that was here with office hours with us, you, you've met them already. But um, I want you to get a, a couple different opinions from a couple different capital sources that are not VCs. Uh, so that's really what we're trying to build. I can, take this, I can take this conversation in a couple different ways now. Uh, before you open, I've got one question for you about Crystal City. Like that seems to have gotten, that's a, that's a really big, ambitious, really, really cool project. Every time you, at least a few years ago, every time you flipped open any tech-related publication, you read about Vegas. Yeah. I, I, I will confess to you, I have not heard, read, or seen much about what you're doing there, yet it seems maybe even more ambitious, certainly more successful. Um, how, how did that come together in terms of finance? I mean, eight, eight million square feet is an enormous amount of yeah. real estate. Yeah. How, how did the economics of that work? Yeah, so Vornado, um, so don't quote me on all this stuff, but uh, just because the details might be a little off, but Vornado uh, 
is the one of the largest REITs in the country. They, you can buy their stock on the New York Stock Exchange. Um, to be to be very direct with you, the reality of it is, I'm a venture guy on the on the on the, and I just want to invest in the equity side of tech companies. Um, I have no interest in, in owning or operating a REIT. Um, that being said, if I, if I can be very direct with you, I just knew that Vornado was bleeding, mm. and they couldn't offload the asset, and they didn't know what to do with the asset. Mm. So they had eight million square feet. It's eight percent of their their national portfolio, mm. and so the, the the way the agreement worked in plain in plain English was, I get to control it. Uh, I don't want any of the upside in anything other than the companies I bring to town. Makes sense. So, cool. so, um, so we had an operating agreement. The actual agreement we signed was an operating agreement where I got I got to take control of it, um, and within reason. The only things I don't think I was allowed to do is like I couldn't tear down any of the existing buildings, but I did have operational budget to 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 do to do build outs and stuff like that. So yeah, we. That's great. I mean, like we did stuff like we bored a tunnel. This sounds so ridiculous. There's a tunnel that we bored. Uh, from one of the parks, we board this underground tunnel. So anybody that's been over there, you know, there's Reagan Airport, then there's GW Parkway, then there's Crystal City. So we actually board a tunnel underneath uh, uh, George Washington Parkway, so you can walk from Crystal City to National Airport in seven minutes. So, I mean, we we actually ran it like a dictatorship. To be very like clear with you, like the only way to get it done, to get that kind of stuff done quickly, was to like, so, so respectfully. Like one of the differences of like Vegas, for example, is Vegas kind of operates um, respectfully. Vegas sort of operates as sort of this like kumbaya model. Let's all agree to do this stuff, and you know, and that works for Tony's model, and it, and it sort of it just takes some time. We just mm-hmm. ran it as a dictatorship. I mean, we ran construction on three, uh, three sorry, two, twelve-hour shifts, seven days a week. Mm-hmm. You had an A and a B team, so it was two two a.m. to two p.m. and two p.m. to two a.m. Um, and all construction uh, transfers between buildings were underground, so you would never see a construction team on the, hmm. on, the, on the main road. So like you and your families could be eating dinner or lunch or breakfast, and you'd never really see anybody but the maintenance man at ground level. That's cool. Or sorry, the groundskeeper. On, uh, so uh, not repeatable by any means. I don't think you can take, I don't think, just like you can't take Crystal City, um, just like you can't take like the, the Vegas uh, project and put it right into Indy, I don't think you can take this. But I think if there's like little little ideas that you can use here. Well, the tunnel idea is definitely going to happen. So that's. <laughs> well, no. You, so the key is you got to get your face on everything, and then it works. <laughs> that's that's the key. Put your face on anything. When in doubt, just put your face on everything. Maybe we'll put your face on everything. See, it worked for you. So can I can I just admit something? I, I remember when I used to go to Times Square. Jay Z used to have like this. Do you remember anybody been to Times Square recently? Like Jay Z and Puff Daddy back in the day used to have like their face on like 80 floors of these buildings. It's like, what do I have to do to do that? <laughs> yeah, I mean, now you're outside of Gate C4 at Dulles, which is pretty sweet. Pretty much, so yeah. That and now I live in a trailer behind Chris's office, so. Yeah, I can't wait to hear more I'm living the dream, trailer. I guess. Yeah. That's, uh, as a fellow Ford man, I have to tell you, when I saw the Raptor, I got very excited. I, thought, I get excited every time is, I see it. This it is makes a, all the right noises. It's like a, it's like a sofa on wheels. It just, yeah, that's cool. Stay up to date with High Alpha, our portfolio companies, and the future of enterprise cloud. Subscribe to our newsletter to get portfolio updates, new company launch information, and the latest content in your inbox every month. Visit highalpha.com slash newsletter to subscribe. That's highalpha.com slash newsletter. 
Thanks so much for tuning in to today's episode. Speaker Series Rewind is brought to you by Hi Alpha, a venture studio that designs and builds B2B SaaS companies. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. You can also subscribe or find additional content at highalpha.com slash podcast. We'd really appreciate any reviews. It'll help us reach more awesome people like you. Catch you next time.